Well, Luke chapter 5, and um, verses 1 to 11. Luke 5, 1 to 11. Let me set the scene for you and note that in verses 1 to 3, we have a floating pulpit. We have a pulpit uh, that uh, floats in those verses. We are in a lovely room, Uh, not the best acoustics, but it's a lovely room, and we have comfortable chairs, and I have a a solid pulpit. The Lord Jesus did not. The people, were told, were pressing in upon him so that they might hear the word. That's wonderful to read, and that's something we want to pray for, that we might see in our day. We want to pray that in our day, in our country, in our province, in this area, uh, that people will be pressing in upon preachers so that they might hear the word. Christians uh, in southern Ontario seem to be preoccupied with so many other concerns. We need to be praying for this kind of thing, that people will be pressing in on preachers, Pressing in on Christians to hear the word of God. Well, they're pressing in upon him, so much so that he gets into Peter's boat and tells Peter to push out a little bit, and from there he will preach. He sits down, as was customary, and begins to preach. His voice will carry better over the water. And so the Lord Jesus has a pulpit that floats on the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Gennesaret, or even uh, the Sea of Tiberias. All those titles, those names are interchangeable for this one body of water. So we see then in verses 1 to 3 a pulpit that floats. And and then in verses 4 to 7, we see a power that amazes. You know the miracle, and one commentator says that that miracle in verses 4 to 7, it's something of a tip. Jesus is giving Peter a tip, not a piece of advice, but a piece of coin. He's saying to him, well, you've allowed me to use your boat. Let me give you a tip. Now, it's advisable to give tips. If you're going to leave the uh, waiter a tract, put a dollar or two with it as well. Give them a tip. But this is not a tip. That's nonsense. This is a teaching opportunity The reason the Lord Jesus makes bare his arm and does a miracle is so that he might use it as an opportunity to teach them something, something about himself and something about what he is commissioning them to do. And so you come in verses 9 to 11 to really the heart of this passage. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. James and John and Simon and... uh, All of the other brethren were just astonished. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. There's the heart and soul of this passage. And that's why Jesus did the miracle, so that he could say to them, I've just caught fish. And from now on, we are going to catch men. Well, I have two points to set before you. There is a a portrait of the master and then a picture of the men. 
And we begin then with a portrait of the Master. You and I are in the service of one whom Peter rightly calls Master, in verse 5, and Lord, in verse 8. We serve a Lord and Master, and our Lord and Master has called us to be fishers of men. We catch them up out of the dangerous waters of this world, and we place them safely on the solid ground of heaven. That's what we do. We Christians have various callings, but we have one job. And that job is to rescue the perishing. That's what we do. We have various callings, but we have one job, and that one job is to be a witness to the world. That job is to shine the light of Jesus. That job is to point sinners to Christ. That job is to tell them about the gospel and to win them to Christ. That's our job. In short, our job is to be useful in the conversion of poor, lost sinners. And like the apostles, from the moment of our conversion, we are catching men. We're winning them to Christ. We've been commissioned by the Lord Jesus. We have been equipped by the Lord Jesus. And we will be used by the Lord Jesus. And we can have no better master than Jesus in this great work to which we've been called. We can serve no greater master, no better master. And it is the delight of our lives to be in the service of this Jesus whilst we are about catching men for the kingdom. So let me tell you about this Lord Jesus. Let me try and give you something of a portrait of the Master. And let me say first that he's glorious. He's glorious. Look at verse 5 of this, uh, of this passage. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And some people imagine, some commentators make up the idea that there are some less than noble motives and thoughts in Peter's mind. And I repudiate that and I say, look at what Peter says. He calls him master. I don't understand this. But you are master. And so, at your word, I will act. And then, of course, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, when he saw the miracle... He was astonished. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He is overwhelmed by the majesty of Jesus. And I wonder if you and I have been overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory of Jesus. I wonder if today we come before God overwhelmed by the splendor and majesty of God. Or are we so distracted by the stuff of this world that we are unmindful of the God before whom we stand, the God we worship today, the majesty and the glory of our God? Are we conscious of who He is? Are we overwhelmed by that splendor? Psalm 104 says, O Lord my God, You are very great. 
You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And Peter was beginning to understand that. He was beginning to see that. He began to realize that this one whom he served was not just master, verse 5, but he was also Lord, verse 8. The word Lord was used and has been used in Luke about 30 times up to this point. And in every instance, it's used in reference to God. And so now Peter speaks to Jesus. He says, you are master. That is, you're someone to be obeyed. But you're more than that. You are Lord. You are God Almighty. And so he's conscious. It's beginning to dawn on him with a sense of wonder, the splendor and the majesty of this one. And so he says, I'm not fit to be in your presence. Jesus is glorious. Standing before God, Abraham said, I am nothing. I am nothing but ashes and dust. Genesis 18. And Job, Job who is a righteous man. Job stands before God and he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. These men are conscious of the splendor and the majesty of their God. It's dawning upon Peter, the splendor and the majesty. This is no ordinary man. This is God Almighty. Isaiah is overwhelmed with the holiness of God. It's revealed to him in Isaiah 6. And he says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I am of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Peter's beginning to understand that. And he's overwhelmed by who Jesus is. This Jesus He has authority over men. He's the master. Do we come before God this morning knowing that Jesus is master to us? And His word is my command. And obedience is my responsibility. And I do what He says whenever He says it. And I obey as the angels obey in heaven. He's master. He has authority over men. He has power over creation. This Jesus whom we serve. At first, they caught nothing. And then their nets were breaking and their ships were sinking because Jesus had done something. He had power over creation. He says, let down your nets. And their nets begin to break with the catch. He has power There's no limit to his power. There's no end to his power. It's unimaginable power. Nothing can resist God. And no hand can stay the work of Jesus. He has authority over men. And he has power over creation. And Peter now stands before him and he is overwhelmed with the goodness of Jesus. And he's overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus. Who is our master? What's he like? Well, he's glorious. Your master. You serve this Jesus today. You're going into a week this week wherein you will serve this glorious Jesus. And you'll not be on your own. 
He'll be with you. And then he's loving. He's not only glorious, but he's loving. I mean, why is he doing this? Why is he preparing these men? Because that's what he's doing. He's preparing them and readying them to launch them off into the world, to catch men and women and young people and children. Why is he doing this? Why is he marshalling his forces for this grand endeavor? Why is he sending these people into the world to catch men? And why has he sent generation after generation of Christians into the world? Why has every generation of Christians gone off into the world to catch men? Now, why is that happening? Why does Jesus do this? Well, it's because he's the friend of sinners. It's because he's the lover of our souls. It's because he wants to rescue the perishing. That's why. We see that Jesus is the loving friend of sinners in so many different ways. You can look at the tears of Jesus. In Luke 19, verse 41, it says, And when he, drawn, when he drew near to the city, uh, the city that kills the prophets, that city, the city where he would be killed, that city, when he drew, no, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Now they would reject him, and he knew it. They had hard hearts, and he knew it. But he wept for them. That's the heart of Jesus towards sinners. That's the love of Christ towards the lost. You see it in his tears. You see it in his death. You see it in the tears of Jesus, and you see it in the death of Christ this is love, says John later, 1 John 4.10. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And when you go to Golgotha, and when you gaze upon the dying Christ, that's love. And He's willing to drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs because He loves sinners. And He does that so that He might have a gospel to give to the fishers of men that they can take to the lost. He's a loving Savior and a loving Master, and you see it in His tears, and you see it in His death, and you also see it in the joy of heaven. Because what happens in heaven when even one sinner is saved? Well, you can go to Luke 15 and read verse 10 and see that when one person is saved, the angels of heaven rejoice. The world might not care, and family members might be upset, and your friends might reject you, but the, the myriad of angels in heaven, they're rejoicing when you come to Christ. So maybe you've walked into this room, and you're just, frankly, not a believer in the providence of God and the kindness of God. You're here in this place amongst all these Christians, and were you to believe in the Lord Jesus, let's suppose you bow your head even now and trust the Lord Jesus and ask Him to save you and forgive you of all of your sins, heaven will rejoice. And thousands upon thousands of angels will rejoice that you are saved. How extraordinary is that? That's why I'm saying to you that Christ, He's a loving Master. And not only do angels rejoice, but in Luke 15, verse 20 and following, God rejoices. The Father rejoices. I mean, the father sees the prodigal coming. He runs out to meet him. He embraces him and he kisses him. And he says, let's have a feast because my son who was lost has been found. 
And so God is happy when sinners are saved. So he's a loving master. And this loving master, he's the one who sends these, these fishermen into the world. God sent Philip to bring the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. That's grace and love and mercy and kindness. In Acts 8.26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So God says to Philip, Go. He sends his angel to tell Philip to go and tell the Ethiopian eunuch how to be saved. We have a loving master. It is the Lord Jesus who directs Paul through Asia Minor, and Paul wants to go that way, and God says to him, no, go that way. And God sends a vision so that he will cross the Aegean and go across to Macedonia and go to Lydia and bring the gospel to Lydia. You see, God is a loving God, and Christ is a loving master. He's not only glorious, he's also loving. And he's also powerful. He's also powerful. You see, from verse 10... The Lord Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching men. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is absolute certainty. You will be catching men. I'm sending you on an endeavor that, humanly speaking, cannot succeed, but you will succeed. He can say that because he's powerful. We need a powerful master. If he's going to send us into the world to catch men, to catch those fish out there, we need a powerful master. Because we're terrible fishermen. We don't know where they are, the fish that we're supposed to catch. We don't know where they are. Now, I'm told, I'm told that fishermen use a locator. Don't know anything about that. Uh, don't know anything about the efficiency of it. Can't make a comment. I have my suspicions, but this is not the place. In Acts 16 and verses 9 and 10, there's a man who speaks to Paul in a vision. And he says to Paul, come over to Macedonia. Well, they conclude that, that God wants them to go to Macedonia. And when they cross over, they, they happen to run across a fortune-telling slave girl. And when they speak the gospel to her, she's saved, and, and somehow they, they end up in prison. And in prison, they happen to run across a jailer whose heart is just good soil. He's ready. He says, what must I do to be saved? And then they tell him the gospel, and he's saved. And so what's happened is that even though Paul and his companions, they don't know about Lydia, they don't know about the slave girl, they don't know about the jailer, but God brings them together. God brings them through Asia Minor, across the Aegean, and down into Macedonia to meet these three people. They happen to come to that place where Lydia is. They happen to end up in the jail on the right shift when it's that jailer Not another one, but that jailer. Who's arranging all this? Well, the God who knows where the fish are 
and he brings the fishermen to where those fish can be found and won. That's astounding. We came back from England on a plane, and my wife sat next to a woman uh, to whom she bore witness to Christ. And she also said to the woman, Now you chose your seat, and we chose our seat, but God put us together so that you could hear the gospel. That is this. That is God bringing the fish and the fishermen together. That is providence. That is saving grace. That is the power of God. Because we can't do that kind of stuff. We don't know where they are. And we don't know who they are. Because they don't have an E on their head saying elect. But God brings us together. At prayer meeting, we've been praying for some time now for witnessing opportunities. If you're going to ask God to bring about witnessing opportunities, he needs to be powerful like this. Otherwise, well, he can't do it. But he can. He's powerful. So we need that because we don't know where they are. And we need that because we can't change their hearts. We can't change their hearts. As I said, I'm not a fisherman, nor do I care to ever be one. But I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that I know this that they don't want to be caught, the fish. They're not interested in being caught. Uh, They fight like crazy to be not caught. Well, I know also that the Bible says that the fish that we're after, they don't want to be caught either. For one thing, in Ephesians 2, they're dead. And again, I'm not a fisherman, but I know you can't catch dead fish. I don't care what the bait is, not going to take it. These people are dead. I mean, they're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 makes that absolutely clear. And so you can't catch dead men. What's more, Romans 8, 7 says that they're not only dead, but they're hostile. They're hostile. You see, those are pictures. They're not contradictory. They're pictures about the spiritual state. They're dead spiritually. They're also hostile spiritually. That is, they hate that fisherman. They don't want to go anywhere near that fisherman. They're hostile towards that fisherman. What's more, the fish love the water, and they want to stay there. That's their environment. That's their home. That's their place. Well, John 3, verses 19 and 20 says that unbelievers, they love the darkness, and they want to stay there. And it says that they hate the light, and they don't want to go there. So how do you catch these fish? Well, these fish are not going to be caught unless there is a a divine intervention, unless God makes bare his arm, unless... God's power is brought to bear on these fish to somehow bring about a change. That's what Jesus said, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. No one will come. They cannot come because they're dead, because they're hostile, because they have no interest in spiritual things. No one's seeking after God. No one's interested in God. Everybody hates God. They won't come unless God draws them. Sovereign grace. We need a powerful master if we're going to be able to catch some fish in this world. 
Well, that's what God does. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put it within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will do that. He's powerful. He can do that. He will do that. He promises to do that. And that's why Jesus can say, I will build my church and you will be fishers of men and you will catch fish. God's powerful. The Lord Jesus has power. That's why what we read earlier in Isaiah 55 is true. My word shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our God is a glorious God, and because of His love, He sends the gospel through people like us. And because of His power, that gospel will bring about fruit to the saving of souls and the rescuing of the perishing. And that's why things like this happen. There was a man, a young man by the name of William Mackay. He's 17 years old. And he's about to leave his home in Montrose in Scotland. And his mother's concerned about him because he's not a Christian. So she gives him a Bible. She puts it in his trunk, having inscribed his name and her name and a text in the Bible. He goes on to study in Edinburgh. Uh, He dismisses the gospel. He's not interested in Christ. He's interested in sin and in a wicked lifestyle, which he begins to live as soon as he's away from his home, he becomes a doctor and a well-respected doctor and a, and a man who is influential in his field and successful in the hospital where he serves. But he's also the president of a club called the Infidel Club. The word infidel means someone who's rejected God and embraced wickedness. He's the president of that club. Now, that sounds like just a picture, an image to describe someone, but there was such a club, and he was in charge. One day, there's a a man brought into the hospital uh, who's really dying. He's been crushed in some kind of accident, and he says to the doctor, he says to Mackay, he says, will I live? And the doctor says, uh, Mackay says, ah, you'll be fine. And the man says to him, tell me the truth. I'm not afraid to die. Just tell me the truth. And Mackay says, yeah, you have, you have just several hours to live. And the man says, well, that's all right. He says, I have no fear of death. But he says to Dr. Mackay, he says, will you do two things for me? The doctor says, yes, I'll do that. He says, well, please, in my pocket is a packet, two weeks worth of wages, please See to it that that packet of money gets to my landlady. I owe her rent. Please see that that gets to her. And the second is this. Please ask her to send the book. Please ask her to send the book. What book, says the doctor. She'll know, says the man. The doctor goes, continues his rounds, having seen to it that these requests will be heeded. But he can't get this young man out of his mind. He can't forget the words, I'm not afraid to die. And so he returns 
And he says to the nurse who was there, what's happened to that man? She says, well, he just died a few minutes ago. And he says, was that packet of money sent? Yes, it was. Did he get his book? Yes, they brought the book. He picks up the book. And it's, it's his Bible. He had pawned that Bible years ago in order to finance his profligate living, in order to buy whiskey. He had pawned that. But here is his Bible. He opens it, and in the flyleaf he sees his name. He sees the name of his mother. He sees the text that she had given him. He is converted. And he would later write this. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, we sing. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Our praise now we bring. Well, no wonder. That's this master. He's the one that sends us into the world. You and I may be afraid, we might be intimidated, we might feel our insufficiency, but it's this great master who sent us. We must obey. Well, that's the master. That's the portrait of the master. Now, a picture of the men. A picture of the men. We'll move more quickly. The word men, of course, is a reference to our humanity. God uses all genders to fish for men. Well, what can we say about the men? Well, we can say this. They are well-equipped. They are well-equipped. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes to the house of the interpreter. And in the house of the interpreter, he finds a, a painting. And it's the painting of, well, of a Christian. And uh, it's described in this way. Uh, the picture was the picture of a very grave person. That is a serious person. He's not a clown. She's not a juggler. She knows she's in this world because of serious business. We're fishers of men. He's a very grave person. He had his eyes lifted up to heaven. He had the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was on his lips. The world was behind him, and he stood as if he was pleading with people, and there was a crown of gold that hung over his head. That's why I'm saying they're, they're well-equipped, these people, these Christians that go and, and they fish for men. They're well-equipped because they have the Bible. You see, these fishermen are pretty low-tech compared to modern fishermen, but they have one tool, and it's the best of tools. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have the best of weapons. We have the best of tools. It's, a, it's a, a tool that must be successful. It's a weapon that must overcome. We're well equipped. To be sure, we have bait in a sense. There is a kind of bait that we use. Titus 2.10 talks about 
the godly lives of Christians and how that godly life adorns the gospel. Your godly life adorns the gospel. And there is a wonderful sense in which a loving, kind, Christian family, and I mean us, we're not just community, we're a family. And a loving group of kind Christians adorns the gospel. And that's what you do. That's why when non-Christians have come in, you've been kind to them, and that helps to adorn the gospel. And that's kind of like bait to say, hey, this world is harsh and cold and cruel, but Christ makes a difference. He transforms people and see his love in the words and the actions of these people whom he's already transformed. That's kind of like bait. But the fundamental weapon, the fundamental tool, is the word. And at the bottom of it all, it's the gospel. It's just the gospel. That's all we really have. Our kindness is going to transform nobody. It's the gospel that's the power of God under salvation. That's our fundamental instrument. And so that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. What does Peter do? He's a weak man. He stands up. He preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ. And 2,000 fish jump into the boat. That's the weapon we have. And you go right through the book of Acts, that's what's happening. Because that's the word that's spreading like wildfire throughout the the Roman Empire. Acts 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. Acts 6, 7, the word continued to increase. Acts 8, 4, they went about preaching the word. Acts 12, 24, the word increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 9, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And so that's the weapon we have. Go and catch fish in the world. Go and you'll be catching men. How do you do it? Tell them the gospel. It's not working though because, you know, we haven't seen a lot of conversions. Maybe we should try. No. It's the word. It's the gospel. Give them the gospel. But we have techniques, and I saw this on the internet, the guy said it's guaranteed. It happened there in Lusaka in Africa. No, it's the Word. Give them the Word. That's the only thing that will work. Spurgeon, somebody said to Spurgeon, I saw one of your converts, and he was in a bar drunk. And Spurgeon says, well, I'm not surprised if he was one of my converts. Yeah. But if he's God's convert, he won't be there. You see, God uses His Word. You can get all kinds of converts. You can fill this place up with your techniques. But if you want people saved, if you want actual fish jumping into the boat, you need the Word. That's the only thing that will save people. So when J.C. Ryle just hears Ephesians 2.8 read, I'm sure you know Ephesians 2.8. If you don't, you should. He just hears it read, and it's useful in his conversion. It's the Word, you see. Usually, landmines are terrible. But I always think that if you teach people the Word, if you put the Gospel in their mind, if you uh, help children to memorize biblical texts, it's like putting benevolent landmines in them that in God's time will explode into life 
and explode with life-giving force, transforming them into saved people. You see, these these fishermen are well-equipped. Secondly, they're committed. They're committed. Peter and the other fishermen here, they worked hard. Verse 5 says, they toiled all night. And that word toil is not just work. Like, you can work, but this is work that results in fatigue. Because you can work and still be fresh as a daisy afterwards, because you didn't really work hard. This is work that exhausts you. And they worked all night. And they apparently brought that same commitment, that same vigorous effort to their ministry, to the catching of fish, who were humans. They caught fish, they worked hard. Then they began to catch men, and they worked even harder, because every single one of them, except John, gave their lives to it. They became martyrs in the cause. And John, John was so dedicated that later on in life, when he couldn't stand to preach because he was so old, tradition tells us that he sat down in a chair and preached. See, these men, they were committed. They weren't hyper-Calvinists. They didn't say, well, you know, God ordained that these fish will come into the boat, so let's watch. Let's watch them jump. No, they knew that they had to go out. They had to get the line in the water. They had to drop the net. They had to go and they had to send missionaries. And they had to go and tell people. They had to hand them a tract. They had to give them an ultimate question. They had to bring them to church. They knew they had to expend effort if they were going to see these people saved. They weren't hyper-Calvinistic. They knew that they had to work, and they did, and they worked hard. Nor were they selfish. They weren't hyper, and they weren't selfish. Frankly, over the years, I've seen, I've seen so many professing Christians, and they attend church, and all they're interested in is what they can get out of it. Are my needs being met? You know, they, at some point, probably heard Randy Bachman singing, looking out for number one. And they thought, hmm, that's the gospel. No, it's not. That's a lie from the pit. No, no, you're here to serve. It's not all about me. If I'm to have the mind of Christ, then I have to be selfless. And I have to be dedicated to the the saving of souls, to the building up of the church, to seeing living stones being brought into the church and seeing the church brought up, built up, and established. And I do everything I can for that because God put me here for that purpose. I'm here to serve. You're here to serve. And we have people like that, in this church. And I find it inspiring to watch you. And I want to be like that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, says Paul in Philippians 2, count others more significant than yourself, and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And we have that. And I'm watching it in you. I'm seeing it in you. And it's stirring my soul. It's inspiring my effort. I want to be like you. Because we're here for a purpose. We're here to save souls. 
And you want to be, and I want to be like John Harper. And just before he dies, you know, John Harper, Titanic goes down, he's in the water clinging to driftwood. And he comes across a man and he says to the man, are you saved? The man understands, I mean, are you saved? I mean, look at me, I'm going down. Are you saved? The man says, no. And Harper quotes Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he drifts off. The waters carry them apart. And then the waters carry them together again. And Harper says to him again, are you saved? And the man says, no. And Harper quotes the text again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then moments after that, the cold Atlantic water drags Harper to the bottom. And four years after that, that man to whom he spoke, spoke publicly here in in Hamilton. Oh, there's Hamilton. Spoke in Hamilton and said, I was John Harper's last, last convert. And God used that text. So, you don't have to present a whole, you know, a course on apologetics to this man, this woman, this child. Give him the Bible. Give them the text. Point them to Jesus. Even on your deathbed, that's how committed you and I need to be. And lastly, they're blessed. They're they're equipped, and they're committed, and they're blessed. Why are they blessed? Well, I, I I could say a number of things about why they're blessed. But I'll just mention this. They're blessed because they get to see people saved. They get to see people saved. Spurgeon, this is his reaction to his first convert, to the first person converted under his ministry. He says, How my heart leaped for joy when I heard tidings or news of my first convert. If anyone had said to me, Someone has left you 20,000 pounds. If someone had said to me, someone's left you a million dollars, I should not have given a snap of my fingers for it compared with the joy which I felt when I was told that God had saved a soul through my ministry. I felt like the boy who has earned his first dollar or like a diver who has been down to the depths of the sea and brought up a rare pearl. We want more and more of that joy. So we're going to keep praying for God to give opportunities. We're going to keep praying for God to give us words to speak. We're going to keep praying for fruit for our labor so that we might see more and more people one to Christ. Even people like you. So here you are today. And, you know, you should find it amazing that God, down through the centuries, has marshaled all of his forces, even angelic forces, but he's marshaled all of the saved people and he's sent them into the world to save people like you. How extraordinary is that? More extraordinary 
How amazing that God should, first of all, send his son into the world to save people like us. I mean, you should be astonished. You don't sit back and you say, well, this is a, this is a charge to these Christians to get busy. Well, yes, it is. But it's something that you should be amazed at, that God has done all of this to save people like you. And you should be astonished that should you, this morning, before you leave here, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved as well. And then you'll be part of this army of fishermen sent to save other fish. How blessed you are that you get to hear this. And how blessed you will be if you believe this and trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation, for your forgiveness, so that you can go to heaven. This is about you now, you see. God is speaking to you. And he's saying to you, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, bless your word. Bless it to the saving of souls, and bless it to the stirring and energizing of your saints. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.